Welcome to Integrative Medicine Solutions with Forum Health, the podcast. Our nationwide network of integrative and functional medicine providers believe in a new standard of healthcare, one that creates optimal health by focusing on partnering with you, understanding your needs, learning about your unique health history, and getting to the root cause of your concerns. Using advanced testing, emerging therapies, and the latest technology, Forum Health providers are at the forefront of integrative and functional healthcare for all. Your journey to better health starts here. What is a chronic infection? In my practice, uh, chronic infection basically uh, describes individuals that uh, have colonization of one or more specific pathogens that they've acquired prior to that in life. Um, they can acquire them as early as in utero. If the mom happens to be infected and colonized, uh, and then we also are exposed to pathogens throughout the rest of our life. But this is a little bit at odds with what I was necessarily taught in medical school. And what we've learned is that many of the 4,000 pathogens so far known to man uh, because of study at, by microbiologists around the world, and I actually believe that number is going to prove to be way higher than 4,000. But what we know is that when uh, a pathogen or a bad germ, one of these 4,000, accesses the body in some way, um, we used to think that the immune system would react or the person would be treated with antibiotics and that the germ would be gone. But what we've really learned now is that many of these pathogens to humans actually have the capability to persist. Now, a lot of times the disease that they cause when they are first contracted into the body might be quite a bit different than their prolonged problems in the body uh, or when they become in a more persistent state of illness. Now, some people will talk about them going into a dormant state. Uh, many viruses, for example, Epstein-Barr virus would be a good example of that, but so would certain bacterial pathogens, such as some of the ones in the tick-borne group, such as Lyme, that we know, in my mind, they probably are never absolutely dormant in the sense that they are causing no problems at all. And in my world, uh, these persistent pathogens, once we acquire them and become infected, sometimes I even prefer to use the term colonized, because colonized doesn't always tend to have the same implications of the word infection, which makes people think more acute illness symptoms. But it turns out that when those germs are there, they're, they're continuing to act as a stimulus to the immune system, that there is the presence of a foreign invader. And these, these different pathogens, many of them have the capacity to give off molecules that they, that they make that are in themselves toxic. Like for example, tetanus, the, the, to the toxin that tetanus makes uh, when we step on a rusty nail can even result in the disease lockjaw. And it's actually a response to the tetanus toxin. Or if you eat a can of beans that happens to be uh, contaminated with botulism, the botulism toxin, which some ladies like to inject in their foreheads because it relaxes the muscles, can actually cause you to die from the neurotoxin botulism. Now we know it as Botox. Um, 
But yeah, those are just a couple of ways that these persistent chronic infections can cause persistent illness in patients. And they're one of the forms of ongoing toxic exposure that causes these signs and symptoms of illness in our patients. Do viruses always remain dormant in the body? And if so, could COVID-19 activate it, even if a patient maybe hasn't previously had an issue? Yeah, I would say that, you know, what we're learning is that very likely most of the viruses that we, we might contract will remain persistent in the body. And, and I don't really like to use the word dormant. Uh, I, I prefer to use the term smoldering. And I believe that many times a subsequent uh, infection, let's just say COVID-19, or before that, certainly we had HIV viruses back in the 70s and 80s, especially, they're still here today, that when they came on board because of the actions that the the new virus caused, uh, it did oftentimes flare, or some people use the word reactivate. I almost prefer to use the term flare because that implies more that the, the first germ was there, maybe not totally inactive, but now because of a new germ like, say, COVID-19, uh, the, the combination of the two became much more problematic for the patient. Epstein-Barr, as it turns out, is frequently one of those viruses that in some people can cause a really bad illness, mononucleosis, uh, but in some people it causes an asymptomatic infection. And yet it persists in the body and it is not harmless to the body. And oftentimes, depending on other factors, uh, it can sometimes flare and then cause additional problems. COVID-19 can also do that. And in the case of COVID-19, I think more than anything, it's because of a specific protein that the COVID-19 expresses on its sur surface that we call the spike protein, which just so happens to be the same protein that the RNA vaccines cause our bodies to make. So that will increase the amount of this inflammatory spike protein in our bodies, whether it be from contracting the virus or from the RNA vaccine for the virus. Why do you think, or why is COVID-19 reactivating chronic infections like Epstein-Barr virus and Lyme? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think one of the things is that the, the threat brain, the part of the brain that's there to sense when we're not safe, but we're under attack or in, in danger, that a virus like COVID-19 will often put that part of our brain into a state of threat. And that when the brain is in that place of threat, oftentimes it affects other systems. For example, the immune system can often become suppressed just by the brain being in that place of threat. I think also that very likely certain pathogens can also even cause direct immune suppression. Uh, or they may cause mitochondrial toxicity and dysfunction. And, you know, without enough mitochondrial energy uh, in the form of ATP, our bodies are going to be much more susceptible to other toxins and infections that might already be pre-existing. 
what acute symptoms should somebody look for if they suspect they have a reactivated chronic infection? The symptoms of infection reactivation or what I would more typically call a flaring of an existing pathogen or even a new pathogen vary a little bit. Uh, more of the acute symptoms or the recent symptoms on immediate acquisition would be more along the lines of what we know of as a, a cold, uh, the sore throat, fever, chills, um, flu-like symptoms. But oftentimes, uh, fl the flaring of symptoms uh, from a pre-existing infection that flares for whatever reason, whether it's COVID-19 or even just a stressful life event that causes it to flare, would be more along the lines of fatigue, brain fog, uh, a wide variety of digestive symptoms, including uh, symptoms that we might term as IBS or irritable bowel syndrome, uh, a wide variety of different aches and pains, which basically are signals of inflammation affecting especially the, the, the pain nerves of the body, um, also can cause mood issues. Uh, anxiety, sadness, depression, uh, even sleep disorder symptoms. Those would be the typical things that we see. And different uh, pathogens that flare might have slightly different um, pictures of symptoms. And that, that may depend partly on the pathogen, but it may also depend partly on the person and the way that they respond to those kinds of threats that has more to do with their own personal sensitivity pattern. You know, these diseases have different genetic makeups, but similarities and symptoms, making them very difficult to diagnose and treat. So how do you get to the root cause and determine which one is the culprit? Yeah, that's where definitely history comes into play. And that's why focusing especially on the time of onset can really provide some valuable clues. Um, you know, when we ask a patient, when did you first notice your symptoms? Uh, uh, frequently we will hear about some unique exposure or perhaps acquisition of a new infection. Um, even something like, for example, eating some old potato salad and uh, that there was exposure to food poisoning can sometimes act as, as that kind of trigger. But um, certainly a lot of our patients will have history that other people have done tests to determine the presence of certain uh, pre-existing infections in those patients. Uh, a lot of those tests happen to be uh, immune-based tests that where they're looking at uh, antibody titers or what we call serologic titers in patients. But certainly if we know about the fact that there are pre-existing infections of one sort or another, that can give us clues. Uh, also knowing that certain pathogens tend to more frequently cause certain patterns of symptoms. Uh, just as a, for instance, we know that a pathogen Babesia, which is actually a protozoal parasite that can be vector-borne as with tick bites, that it will frequently cause lots of shortness of breath, night sweats, fevers, and chills. So if that seems to be especially the pattern of the patient's symptoms, it might lead us to focus a little bit more in that direction. 
But I, I would have to say, in my experience, there is so much variability and there is so much overlap between these various pathogens and other uh, environmental toxic threats that it can be difficult. And sometimes, honestly, it just boils down to trying to do things that we think will be help us successfully lower the burden of pathogens and then assess the benefit that the patient gets. Now, in years past, they've referred to that as empiric therapy, and it, it's not a dirty word. I mean, we've done that in medicine for years and years, but honestly, sometimes it just comes down to a therapeutic trial to see how a patient responds. And how can Form Health Austin help people who are suffering from a reactivated chronic infection? I would have to say that for people who are chronically ill, and many of these people have tried to get answers and tried to get help and, and sometimes some benefit, but oftentimes not complete benefit, or in some cases, very little benefit. Uh, one of the first things that I think we can offer them in, in Forum Health Austin is that we have seen people with conditions like these, and we have been able to identify the reasons and have been able to successfully reduce those root causes and change those people's sensitivity in a way that gradually over time has allowed them to reduce their symptoms and recover normal function. So certainly just to have hope. Uh, that's, I think, one of the main things that we can do for those patients. And then after that, it's going through a process to try to identify their own particular root causes. And it's never just one, it's always a group. Uh, it, it can be difficult to try to determine the hierarchy of which toxin may be the most significant. Uh, and then also it's very important for us to try to change their own personal sensitivity so that we can make them a person that might be exposed to toxins and stress, but isn't gonna react with symptoms and signs of illness. And then last but not least, it's to tell everyone that the threat brain, when it's under, uh, when it's sensing danger, it actually act, acts as the underlying root cause or etiology of many of these symptoms and signs. So if we can help a patient understand that they at least have some control over that threat brain and can exercise that control on a regular basis, that's often proves very successful in, in helping pay, people overcome their problems. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Forum Health Podcast. Forum Health is the first nationwide network of integrative and functional medicine providers. To learn more about this topic and to find a Forum Health provider near you, visit forumhealth.com.